0: of the AMSSM Sports MedCast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Jason Zaremski from the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at the University of Florida, who will be discussing with us overuse throwing injuries in the overhead pediatric athlete. I'd also like to acknowledge the BJSM for their assistance with the recording and production of this episode. To start out, Dr. Zaremski, can you please discuss with us the prevalence and injury patterns we frequently see in the pediatric overhead athlete? Sure, Devin, and,
1: and I just wanted to thank AMSSM as well as BGSM for the opportunity to, to talk to everybody today. You know, there's really quite a lot of uh, athletes playing overhead-throwing sports, uh, particularly baseball and softball. In the United States alone, there's nearly half a million high school baseball players and nearly 400,000 fast-pitch softball players. And that doesn't even take into account the millions of little leaguers playing these sports. However, when we have such great numbers, there are lots of injuries that come along with it. The most common location of injuries is the dominant or the throwing shoulder and elbow. And it, depending where you look at, um, it's usually done in athlete exposure. So for shoulder injuries, it's somewhere around two injuries per 10,000 athlete exposures. And for the elbow, it's usually around maybe about a one or so, even though the elbow seems to little more uh, play in the media because of the Tommy John injuries. What's very interesting about the number of these injuries, though, is the majority of them, and looking at some data as high as 55 to 60%, are chronic and overuse injuries. And this really comes in play with our pediatric and our younger adolescent athletes who, who aren't really throwing as hard as our high school and collegiate players yet, but they're developing these overuse injuries just to so much throwing and year-round
0: throwing. Fantastic. Now. Uh, We'll come back to the shoulder injuries, but to start with the elbow, you mentioned UCL injuries, and and I agree those certainly seem to garner the lion's share of the media attention. Can you just discuss with us the anatomy and biomechanics that predispose an athlete to a UCL injury, and if there's any uh, firm risk factors we've identified at this point?
1: Sure, so so the UCL of the elbow, which is known as the ulnar collateral ligament, um, or the medial ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow, and in kind of lay terms, some, some folks in the media or parents or coaches might refer to it as the Tommy John ligament. The UCL ligament basically provides elbow joint stability and it's a resistor of valgus loads. Now the actual ligament is made up of three bundles. There's the anterior, the posterior, and then there's, there's tissue that sort of connects the, them between. So that's the intermediate bundle, but really the, the bundle that's most important and provides kind of a valgus-resistant force from anywhere from 30 to 120 degrees is the anterior bundle. And this UCL, particularly the anterior bundle, provides elbow joint stability by slowing the elbow during extension during the deceleration phase of throwing And then it also uh, generates a subsequent various counter-torque balance. So this is extremely important in overhead-throwing athletes. That's why we see a significant number of UCL injuries with overhead-throwing athletes, but not with many other sports. Another thing that's really interesting is when you look at all of the biomechanic data and you look at some of the cadaver data, is that uh, the UCL only has a certain amount of tensile strength. Um, and, and I won't get into the numbers, but it only has a certain amount of tensile strength. So basically using cadaveric research, the UCL should tear every time you throw a ball more than 80 or 85 miles per hour. And the reason it doesn't because of all the other muscles around the UCL. But what's most important is the UCL is the primary joint stabilizer of valgus load. So that's why this has become such an important ligament in anybody who's an overhead athlete, particularly overhead throwing athletes. What happens, unfortunately, is if there becomes disruption of the ligament, whether it's a sprain, a partial tear, or in some instances, a complete disruption, this destabilizes the elbow against valgus stress. So basically, it makes throwing overhead with any sort of force at all nearly impossible. And that's where we keep hearing about all these UCL injuries, particularly in baseball pitchers, and we hear about it in the media all the time, and, and that's where surgical intervention has been needed. Other risk factors, which I know you talked about and is very important, particularly at the pediatric level and adolescent level, there's no risk factors which have been uh, shown over and over again um, throughout the literature from the athletic training side, from the physical training side, from the uh, biomechanics side, from the physician side, is that prior UCL injury is a significant risk factor for future UCL injury. The greater one throws and really sort of the demarcation is about 80 to 85 miles per hour where studies have shown UCL injuries start to go up. And then simple things such as not adhering to pitch count guidelines, not adhering to rest guidelines, breaks in what's called the kinetic chain. So if potentially your shoulder is sore and you drop your arm and now there's more stress on the elbow. So there's multiple factors that have been shown over and over again as risk factors for UCL injury.
0: That's great. Thank you for those, those definitions and, and that information. Now, you mentioned the pitch count as a risk factor for UCL and, frankly, all throwing injuries. And I know the MLB has published some guidelines for athlete pitch counts. Can you discuss those guidelines and the evidence to support them uh, and also clarify what the definition of a pitch count is? For example, uh, how does pregame long toss and pre-outing, pre-inning warm-up pitches factor in uh, to the, the total pitch count?
1: Sure, that that's a great question, Devin. Um, so, Major League Baseball um, has a has a website called PitchSmart, and it is a wonderful resource for coaches, for parents, for athletes, for those on the sports medicine team that can help everyone, um, basically provide information to avoid overuse injuries and foster long term healthy careers for our young pitchers and throwers. There is a lot of evidence based research that reflects the importance to prevent these overhead throwing injuries based on the age of the throwers, and pitch count shows that in in nice simple charts and with uh, expert uh, opinions and recommendations based on the literature. It should be noted when we're looking at pitch counts on PitchSmart is based on live game pitches, which is a very interesting question. So for example, if you are a high school junior or high school senior, and you throw approximately 100 pitches in a game, you should not pitch in a live game For at least four more days however we're not counting any other pitches so what our team actually the university of florida uh, recently did is is we wanted to figure out how many pitches does a pitcher at the high school level actually throw off of a mound so we actually went out to every single high school game in our area in 2017 and we counted the pitches in the bullpen before a game pitches in a warm-up between innings as well as live game pitches and what we found was the number of pitches thrown off of a mound on a game day, which is our new term, was about 40% more than live game pitches. Now, it should be noted that sometimes pitchers are not throwing nearly as hard in the bullpen or during warmups as in live game competition. But this goes back to the concept of volume and are we throwing too much, particularly our younger pitchers. So it is very interesting to determine, and a little bit debatable, how do we determine the pitch count? Is it live game pitches or is it a game day pitch count? Uh, So that's something that is definitely important to note. And I would definitely recommend that all parents, coaches, athletic trainers, just keep that in mind when we're monitoring our volume of pitches in our pediatric and adolescent uh, athletes.
0: So just to clarify, it sounds like right now the the guidelines are saying – live game pitches are what we go off of but it sounds like at this point in time we just need some more data to figure out how all those additional pitches you said, up to 40 percent more than the actual pitch count kind of factor into the equation
1: correct right now we use live game pitches at the state level and through major league baseball's pitch smart uh, website but there is more research
0: to be done in this area and, and how do you see adherence to those guidelines at this point in time? Do you think we're getting better at that or is this still an uphill battle for us with motivated young athletes and parents?
1: Well, I can talk, talk to you about in my region in Florida, I think uh, adherence to pitch counts is getting much better. And I, and I give complete credit to Major League Baseball's Pitch Smart guidelines, as well as all the state associations. The National Federation of State High School Associations Uh, Requested a couple of years ago that uh, all state associations come up with a pitch count guideline. Our state in Florida follows Major League Baseball's pitch mark guideline. It used to be we followed innings guidelines, but we found that innings is not really a good marker of volume. So when we switched over to pitches and it's really been emphasized uh, from the state level down, that we really need to be following these because the repercussions for injury we, we just see over and over again keep going up if someone is throwing too much whether it be throughout the season or throughout their career over you know four years if you're a high school pitcher as an example so i do think at least in where i practice that there is definitely an improvement in adherence and, and i suspect this is likely across the country because of the the recommendations by each state
0: to all their respective high schools now, aside from pitch counts, are there any other steps we can take to help prevent these injuries? Oh, absolutely.
1: Um, in addition to overuse, which is something we you know, we, we really harp on and we really want to work on preventing, particularly at the young, younger ages, one really uh, important way we can prevent, prevent these injuries is just participation in multiple sports and to limit sports specialization at least until you know, your son or your daughter gets until your high school age. There's also robust evidence encouraging kinetic chain training. So that's strengthening the entire body and not just if we're talking about pitchers, they're throwing arm. The legs, the gluteal muscles are just as important to throwing and pitching as is the shoulder and the elbow. And I would also be remiss if I didn't mention the spine as well. So really it's a full body training program that is really quite important as well as minimizing uh, sports specialization, particularly at the pediatric and adolescent level. Um, I also uh, want to make sure that, just as a shout-out, we always make sure we examine the scapula as well because the connects of the scapula in relation to the dominant shoulder as well as assessing our rotator cuff strength and our range of motion dominant shoulder in comparison to the contralateral or non-throwing shoulder can also help prevent injuries in throwers, particularly
0: as you start to get a little bit older and you can start to throw a bit harder, which generates increased force and torque on the arm. Now you mentioned kind of a whole body strengthening to include the lower legs and the spine. Who do you see leading these programs? That sounds like it's fairly resource intensive. Is this something that team strength coaches should be doing or athletic trainers? How do you see this coming to fruition?
1: That's a really interesting question. And a lot of it will depend on the resources available in that respective part of the country, uh, as well as within your city. Um, I'm in a college town. So I'm very fortunate that it might be a little bit of a smaller town. So uh, a lot of us in the sports medicine world know each other, so we can refer people over to physical therapy or athletic training or strength and conditioning coaches or whoever it may be. But if you're in a larger city, there may be more resources, but maybe may be more challenging to figure out uh, who to go to. I think what's most important if you're at the high school level, making sure you have someone who's trained in the sport that you, your son or daughter's participating in, so whether it be an athletic trainer, a physical therapist, or sports and performance conditioning coach, and in collaboration with the athlete, the parent, as well as the, the team physician or the physician, so that everyone's on board. Um, but for me to say it should be one particular person over one other particular person, I don't think that's necessary. I think it depends on the background. There's experts in all fields. For example, where I practice at the University of Florida, myself and other colleagues we're physicians while we're extremely knowledgeable we really preach on a collaborative team-based approach with our physical therapists and our staff athletic trainers when we're trying to get say uh, a high school pitcher back onto the mound in a safe manner but i do realize the challenges associated in different parts of the country and sometimes it could just be as simple as just starting slow i've had plenty of parents in my clinic alone just ask me questions and I'll provide them some online resources and mom or dad will really kind of take the lead as long as they're staying in contact with me and make sure they're not doing something that maybe uh, would not be in the best interest of their son or daughter. But as long as they're getting bigger, they're getting stronger, but they're also not specializing so their arm is wearing down. So it's a complex answer to a very simple question. But I think in the end, the more information available
0: to the athlete and to the parents, the better. Yeah, I think that's that's huge. I think that's really key to, to take that team approach. And and this is a difficult problem. Uh, I think it takes everyone working together to, to solve it. Now, so far, we've spent a lot of time talking about baseball players. Do you see similar patterns of elbow injury in other overhead athletes, for example, football or water polo?
1: So it's a really good question. And it's interesting when you think about elbow injuries and in baseball players as an example everyone immediately thinks of the tommy john injury the ulnar collateral ligament injury that we talked about before and and part of that is due to the severity of the injury if you have surgery you're out for you know more than a year um there's a lot of publicity about it there's a lot in the media about it particularly with our major league baseball pitchers but because of the way baseball is designed and the force of which someone throws and the volume which it throws, it's really quite a unique sport with that type of an elbow injury. American football quarterbacks don't have UCL injuries. Water polo, water polo athletes don't typically have UCL injuries. The one sport, interestingly enough, where you have not the same volume of UCL injuries, but the severity, I meaning if you hurt it, it, it could lead to surgery, is actually javelin. And the reason is. Due to the length and the size of the spear, there's so much force and torque on that medial elbow, it can lead to a UCL injury. The other sports, you can certainly have an overuse injury, lateral epicondylitis, maybe you can even develop a stress fracture by throwing too much. But the one difference with baseball versus almost every other sport except for javelin is that UCL or Tommy John injury, which is really quite interesting. And that goes back to the basic biomechanics of how much and how hard does one throw a baseball?
0: Very interesting. That's that's great information. Thank you. Now, so far, we've focused primarily on prevention efforts, but could you also touch on treatment strategies at the early stages of injury and following a complete rupture? Uh, sure. And long-term outcomes, if you've got them.
1: Sure. From a prevention standpoint, this is going to sound kind of simple, but I try to keep it simple. Is if your arm hurts, don't throw. I mean, Ooh. and what I what I try and I and I you know make a little bit of a joke to it when I have an athlete in my clinic. But it, it is pretty much the number one rule because – and I sort of try to put this in, in context of other sports. If you've got a sprained ankle, we can put a brace on it. We might be able to tape it up. You might be able to play at 50 percent or 60 percent. But do you want to go out and pitch at 50 or 60 percent? No. You have to throw it at full strength essentially. Well, if your arm is hurting, whether it's your shoulder, your bicep, your elbow, or if there's another part of your body that hurts every time you throw, such as your lumbar spine, it's not gonna get better by throwing maybe 50% versus 100%. So my first rule is, if it hurts, don't throw, your body's trying to tell you something. Now that aside, there's, there's different treatment strategies based on the type of injury. Honestly, if it's a mild overuse injury, such as tendonitis of the elbow, or tendonitis of your rotator cuff, or maybe a, a lumbar paraspinal strain, Maybe we need to take this a short period of time off, but let's do a connect chain analysis and see was there a breakdown someplace where you're throwing too much? Are your biomechanics off? Um, we have the ability, University of Florida, in our orthopedic and rehabilitation department, we have a sports performance center that we can actually look at the biomechanics of a pitch and see if we can detect something that may be leading to uh, a potential injury. But for the next step up in injury, so so instead of maybe a tendonitis, maybe you develop a stress fracture. Uh, stress fracture of the distal humerus, or you've developed something called a little-league shoulder, which is, uh, the fancy term is called glenohumeral pifsolysis, but basically you can almost think of it like a stress fracture of the humeral head in an adolescent athlete, is we have to shut you down because that bone will not remodel and heal if you keep stressing it. And then we have to figure out why it happened in the first place, and, and I would tell you, you know, more than 90% of the time, it's usually due to volume of overuse, the younger one is. As you work your way up in severity of injury, let's say you have to have surgery. Well, it depends what the surgery is. And obviously I'm not a surgeon. I'm a non-operative physiatry and primary care sports medicine specialist. But I would defer to my surgical colleagues. For example, the UCL reconstruction. I've done a lot of research and written some reviews on you know some myths and realities of the UCL surgery. And I'm going to defer to my surgical colleagues. But what I can tell a parent And what I can tell an athlete is, you will not be back pitching for at least a year, if not a little bit longer. And that's something we'll have to harp on because a lot of the athletes think, oh, maybe I should just go get surgery because I'll be back on the mound in four months or five months or six months. And the reality is that's just not going to happen. So the strategies, once you develop an injury, are sort of determined by the severity of the injury. What I would say with the milder injuries, the tendonitis and the overuse injuries, is once we determine what was the cause, A, we want to stop the cause, but then B, we want to try to figure out, well, how can we prevent this in the future? Is it simply a connect chain program? Is it doing uh, tubing exercises to strengthen your rotator cuff? Maybe it's actually increasing flexibility your hamstrings that led to a PARS defect in your lumbar spine. So everyone is a little bit different. And I think what's important is we have the same approach as a whole, but each athlete is different, and we have to sort of tweak the, the rehabilitation plan based on what the injury is.
0: All right. Now, switching gears a little bit, you mentioned a high prevalence of shoulder injuries. Can you touch on those in a little more detail and discuss any modifiable risk factors we've identified uh, or potential prehab efforts, uh, if they're any different than the ones we've already discussed for the elbow?
1: Sure. There's There's been a lot of research and particularly uh from abroad and particularly from our scandinavian colleagues um i'm talking about uh injury causality in adolescent athletes and in all athletes really and and they talk about internal risk factors and external risk factors now internal risk factors as we know are things we can't change if you're 12 and you're skeletally immature i can't change that if you're only five foot two and your buddy is six foot four we're not going to be able to change that unfortunately But there are developmental risk factors that we can work on. Things such as strength training, if you are skeletal mature. Things such as range of motion of your throwing shoulder. Things such as throwing velocity. Do you have a history of prior throwing injuries that would alert us that maybe we should be aware that you might be at more risk for an injury than someone else who has not had an injury. So those are, I would call them developmental risk factors. And then there's these external risk factors um, or modifiable risk factors, which Devin, which you mentioned. One of them, as we've already talked about, which has gotten a lot of uh, play in the news and the media, and it, there's a significant amount of research, a lot of which has come out of AMSSM um, and its members, is sports specialization, as we've talked about, trying to minimize that, particularly the younger one an athlete is. Training days per week, training days per month. There actually has been some interesting research that came out in the Journal of Athletic Training which showed that if a adolescent baseball pitcher also played catcher, he or she was three times more likely to be injured than if they weren't playing uh, catcher as well simultaneously. So these are all things that we can work on. There's also been some research, which is, uh, some has been done at the University of Florida and some of other locations talking about, well, what if I grow up in Florida or California or Texas as opposed to Massachusetts or Maine? or you know, someplace where it's much colder and you can't play baseball for the most part year-round unless you go to an indoor facility. And there's some research that suggested that you might be at a slightly increased risk of developing an arm injury because you can play all year-round. Now, the, the research is not super robust, but there is some there, and for full disclosure, I have done some research on that as well. But that's something also to think about. I grew up in Chicago. When October came around, I was done playing baseball until January or February, and I went indoors. I practice in Florida. My athletes and my throwers, they play all year round except for taking two weeks off at Christmas. So it's a big challenge <laughs> trying to modify that uh, that risk factor. One thing I also want to, to really mention a little more in depth is two things. One, range of motion of your shoulder and strength of your rotator cuff. Doing things as simple as what's called the Thrower's 10 exercise, which Kevin Wilk helped develop when he uh, at the American Sports Medicine Institute in Birmingham, Alabama. You can do things like tubing exercises for your rotator cuff, even if you're a little bit younger, which doesn't put as much stress on the bones as doing a weightlifting program, which we're really not in favor of. The younger one is an eight, nine-year-old doesn't need to be lifting weights, but doing a tubing uh, program to try to keep your shoulder um, strong and those rotator cuff muscles strong it is really beneficial because we know from research that Rotary Cuff weakness is a risk factor for developing injury as the season goes on.
0: That was fantastic. And completely common sense, but I never thought of the kind of regional implications of of where you live.
1: Simple. And it's, it's simple, and it's actually something. There, there, there's been a couple manuscripts out there that looking at majorly Baseball players and where they grew up in high school, There's been the one that we wrote at the University of Florida was looking at collegiate baseball pitchers in the SEC versus the Big Ten and where they grew up in high school. Now, again, they're retrospective studies. They're not as robust as prospective studies, but there's some research that is out there. The other thing that's interesting, and this is just more kind of a a fan of baseball myself, is if you look at all the Major League Baseball pitchers who have won more than 200 games or more, in the history of Major League Baseball, more than two-thirds of them we're not from the South. So it, it, it's sort of an interesting phenomenon that, that we hear about all of these baseball players that come from Florida and California and the Dominican. But I think what happens is at some point, their uh, you know arms start to wear down. At some point, the arm gives out. So you may be a amazing baseball player when you're 15, but how are you when you're 22? So, and that's, that's really challenging to talk to parents about when you have a really good 12-year-old baseball player or softball player and your son or daughter wants to keep playing. I want you to stay active, but I just want to kind of pump the brakes just a little bit so you're not pitching or throwing 10, 11 months a year so that maybe you don't have an injury when you're 12 or 13, but you might develop one when you're 15 or 16. And that's a really challenging thing to tell parents because their son or daughter isn't hurt yet. So that, that's the challenge I think all of us that, is, that are hopefully listening to this podcast or you know, that struggle with, with with this type of athlete.
0: Now to close, I have two quick questions for you. First, are there any topics you'd like to cover that we haven't discussed yet or any key pieces of information you'd like to circle back on and kind of recap? And lastly, what do you think the areas where future research is needed and how can we as clinicians most effectively help reduce the risk of overuse injuries in our patients?
1: Well, that's that's an interesting question. If you don't mind, I'll take the second question first. Absolutely. there is a very interesting area of research called workload, and something called the acute to chronic workload ratio. And a majority of the research and the concept has really come out of Australia. For those of you listening to this podcast who have not read any of his work, Dr. Timothy Gabbett of Australia and his colleagues have done a tremendous amount of work in this area. And what the acute to chronic workload ratio says It looks at your acute workload, so whatever you are doing, if you're throwing a ball, how many times you throw a ball, on average, in a week. And then it looks at the chronic workload, in this case, throwing a ball, however many times you throw it, in a month. And they look at the ratio. And this can apply to running, to soccer, to weightlifting, whatever the case may be. And what they found is that when your acute ratio goes up by more than about one and a third so going up by more than 30 or 40% to what you normally do in a month, your likelihood of injury goes up. So using that as a basis, there's been lots of research in all non-throwing sports with the exception of cricket. Cricket, there's been a little bit of research in this area. What's challenging, what's very interesting is in workload, there's a thought that instead of not resting for three or four months – should you try to increase your workload? So instead of throwing 100 pitches or 120 pitches at a time, should you try to throw 80 pitches or 90 pitches and just be consistent with that instead of taking three or four months off? Now, this has not been performed in the baseball or softball literature, but it's in every other sport. And in fact, um, I was fortunate to be one of the junior traveling fellows for MSM last year, and I asked this exact question to our Norwegian colleagues who study handball, and they were to put it kindly, they were very surprised that we would recommend taking off from throwing for three or four months. They would never recommend that to their handball players. So the challenge is, and I do think there's some future research in this area, is do we look at workload as a whole in our baseball and softball pitchers? If we're maintaining our workload in our acute trachronic ratio and staying around one, and it's not increasing significantly, would that actually lead to a decrease in injury? Now, this is probably would be something more at the high school level and above, not for a pediatric and adolescent athletes, but it's a very hot topic that has been uh, you know, in the news. It's in the research in multiple journals and in pretty much all over the world, Australia, Norway, the United States. I've talked to colleagues about this. So it's a very interesting challenge, and it, and it flies exactly in the face of what we have just talked about for the half an hour. So it is something that's interesting. I love to do some research on it. I love if there are some colleagues who would want to help me do some research on this in the future. But, but I would be aware of the workload in a throwing athlete because the question is then how to measure it. Right now, all we talk about is volume of measurement, pitch counts, which we talked about before. But there's no good measure of intensity. How do you measure intensity? If, Devin, you can throw 100 miles per hour and I can only throw 80 miles per hour, but you throw 80 miles an hour and I throw 80 miles an hour. I'm throwing it as hard as I can, and you're only throwing 80% as hard as you can. Is our workload the same? No, it's not. So it's really interesting, and, and I'm wondering if this is going to kind of be one of the next hot topics in thro- in the throwing literature in the next couple of years. The, the only other piece of information I would have, particularly with our pediatric and our, and our adolescent throwers, is their kids. You know, they're, you know, what I like to say is they're not major league pitchers. They don't get paid $100 million to go out and pitch for their 11- and 12-year-old travel team. So why should they be pitching more than our major league and professional pitchers? They're kids. Let them have fun. Encourage them. Push them if they want to. But please, if their arm hurts or they're pitching more than eight or nine months a year, it's just a recipe for their arm to break down. And we really need to remember that kids are not mini-adults. We really want to make sure that baseball and softball is fun, especially for our pediatric and adolescent throwers.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Zaremski. That was extremely informative, and I know I certainly learned a lot. I very much appreciate you sharing your time and expertise with us today. I'd also like to thank you, the listener. We hope you found this podcast valuable and that you'll join us again soon for the next edition of the AMSSM Sports MedCast. The views expressed are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the AMSSM, the University of Florida, the United States Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.